0: Welcome to another
1: episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern.
2: And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relative health-related topics, and we do that from an authentically Catholic perspective.
1: Today we're presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode, partly dealing with coronavirus and partly dealing with going back to school.
2: While normally we're heard on the EWTN and Global Catholic Radio Network, this special episode will be played on various podcast apps and, as always, at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Now, in this episode, we're going to answer questions listeners have asked us about children. What better topic is that? How will COVID affect <laughs> the return to school, and what is this rare but alarming syndrome that we've heard about affecting some kids with COVID-19. So, Tom, this is sort of our back-to-school edition, maybe a little bit early for back-to-school.
1: A little bit, but, you know, schools have to start making decisions. I've operated on a couple of teachers the last few days who said they're waiting to find out what the rules are going to be, and they they want to get, get ready. So today, to help us navigate the way that schools are looking at this, is pediatrician, Dr. Michelle Stanford. Uh, We're welcoming her back. She works in Aurora, Colorado, in a private practice. She's also secretary of the National Board of the Catholic Medical Association. She's a state director for the Catholic Medical Association in Colorado. She's a mother of three children and the wife of Philip, who, by the way, is serving on the front lines these days as a police officer in Denver. Uh, Welcome back to Dr. Dr. Michelle.
3: Thanks, Tom and Chris. It's great to be back.
1: You know, Michelle, we have a listener who wrote to us a week or so ago, and we think uh, it's probably good to couch this uh, episode in terms of some great questions he had. He's obviously a father, and he writes, there seems to be mounting evidence that COVID-19 is hitting children harder than we initially thought it would. There are these reports of symptoms similar to something called Kawasaki disease, having nothing to do with motorcycles. As the father of a seven-year-old, he finds it concerning. And he's wondering if he could find out more about what's going on. Really, how big a deal is this syndrome, and how common is it in kids with COVID?
3: So, I would say we're finding, actually, with more evidence, that it's actually less severe in kids than we initially thought. COVID as a whole, and so COVID as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so, we still have that category of kids with uh, medical illnesses, so diabetes, asthma. Uh, heart disease to be at a slightly increased risk, but only slightly. Really, overall, kids have fared very well with um, the disease. And I think the longer we have data, the more we're able to see that.
1: So even better than when you were on Dr. Doctor, doctor back in uh, mid-March? Correct. Well, that's,
2: that's good to know.
3: So, I mean, we know about the Kawasaki's-like syndrome, which we can talk a little bit more about, but so, right. um, Michelle, I do don't you- think that.
2: Do you have a sense, Michelle, why uh, that would be out there that, uh, or why maybe initially we thought children were going to have more trouble? What do you think led to that? And then what's led to our better understanding that you just voiced?
3: I think initially it was thought that they would be more severe, just like with influenza and other diseases. Usually young children and the elderly kind of go together. Hmm. Um, but it just hasn't fared that. There are some hypotheses, and actually, I think some good data that show one of the biggest things is the ACE receptor in the lungs that sort of causes that hyper, hyper immune response is um, less developed in children. Uh, children have
1: where it's less dense in children.
3: Yes, correct, correct, and may even I think Tom. Uh, I don't have data for this, but my thinking of the respiratory tract or the the saliva in the mouth actually has these receptors. And so the infectivity rate of children being lower as well, likely related to that.
2: Isn't that funny? I can't think of another example, at least in recent memory, that underdevelopment is actually an asset. (laughs) It is actually protective. Right, right.
3: Right. Well, and if you think about that hyperimmune response of COVID, kids really are rare to have for them to have an autoimmune, you know, disease. Hmm. Not impossible, but it's rare for kids and so there's just something with the way their immune system responds.
1: So in other words, is the hyperimmune response in adults like an adult version of this Kawasaki disease we hear about or is it separate?
3: No, I think it is similar. I think it is similar because Kawasaki's is thought to be um, like a vasculitis, a hyperimmune response to something. Typically, when we're thinking of Kawasaki's, though, we're ruling out that there is no viral cause. Um, and so I think that's where it is somewhat different, but it's very similar to the presentation, but in older kids.
1: So what is Kawasaki's disease, or is it better called Kawasaki's syndrome?
3: I would say syndrome, yes, because we don't have an infectious etiology when we are identifying Kawasaki's. Part of the workup, like I said, is ruling out EBV, adenovirus, and other viruses that can give you similar symptoms.
1: So in other words, it is, it's a disease when we know a specific cause. It's a syndrome when there's just a, a group of findings that are common. What are yeah. the common findings right. in Kawasaki syndrome?
3: So you have to have a a listing of symptoms, and there's even something called atypical Kawasaki syndrome where you don't have to meet the classic symptoms, but you have to have a fever for greater than 10 days, you have to have elevated inflammatory markers, you can have elevated liver enzymes, rash, adenopathy, the rash is kind of characteristic
1: so, for the non-initial...
0: Oh, sorry. Enlarge... And- yeah.
3: It, <laughs> enlarge them things. Sure. And the rash is very characteristic. It's kind of a full-body, very prominent rash. It's not very subtle. The kids usually look fairly uncomfortable and sick. They usually have red and inj- injected eyes and kind of cracked lips. Um but it's not the mortality or the death rate from Kawasaki's syndrome is, is very low. It's not very, you know, one of the things that Kawasaki's that can be detrimental though, is it can cause cause, um, coronary arteritis. Hmm. So inflamed coronary arteries.
1: And it can, that lead to a heart attack in children?
3: Not a heart attack, but heart disease that you have to monitor.
1: Oh, so it becomes chronic long lasting. Correct. Correct. Okay. And how many cases of Kawasaki's syndrome have you seen in your career?
3: In 20 years, I would say um, 10. I mean, usually every other year or so, (laughs) I'll I'll see one. So it's not terribly common, but not infrequent.
1: And they all survived? Yes. Very good. So how is this syndrome that's being reported in covid similar or different than Kawasaki's?
3: So I would say the biggest difference is age. So Kawasaki's is typically less than five-year-olds, and um, this is more 10 and up. Uh, I think 11 to 17 is the age that was was presented. The difference, though, is um, they are associating it. Not 100% of them have had COVID um, PCR from their nose or even positive antibodies, I think the third criteria is exposure to someone with COVID. So what does that mean so, to yeah. you
1: if somebody has this syndrome, but they don't have antibodies and they don't have sign of the virus by a very sensitive test?
3: Yeah, I think for me, that was sort of the difference. Well, that doesn't necessarily, how can you associate that it is from the disease? But the age category is so atypical from, for Kawasaki's is the, what makes it mm. different.
2: So it looks like Kawasaki's, but the the patient is too old, uh, and the COVID presence is another distinguishing factor that makes it interesting, doesn't it?
3: Yes.
1: Do you know anybody, or have you seen a patient with this syndrome with COVID?
3: I have not. I know Denver has had three um, uh, cases that they're, at least they're reporting them. They, they have to, I think, send them to the C- CDC and decide if it is, can be linked to COVID or not, but they have had three.
1: So there's a lot of fear among parents hearing about this in the media. You're a parent. What, what would you say is a reasonable level of, of concern for this condition?
3: Very low. I, I did when it initially was came out. I had a lot of patient calls. They have a rash. And I said, <laughs> you know, it, it's not a, a subtle presentation. I mean, these kids are sick appearing. So I just had to give a lot of reassurance that you know, just because you have a rash did not mean that you might have this syndrome.
1: So do you think that this rare condition, should it all influence the opening of schools?
3: My opinion is no. and.
1: Um are there underlying conditions that make these children more likely to develop this Kawasaki-like picture?
3: No, not that I know of. I mean the age for these kids, but in Kawasakis there's no risk factors that associate, are associated with a kid getting it.
2: So just to be clear, um we have two sets of children, those who become infected with COVID virus and behave like infected COVID virus people, and then we have those that are infected with COVID virus and develop this syndrome, our or syndrome-like condition. Um, are either of them, are, are the outcomes of the infections likely to be different in those two paths?
3: Um, I think I mean, it's going to be the same. Yes. Potentially, yes. I mean, some of the kids, I mean, I don't know that we know this. I mm-hmm. actually haven't seen. I'd have to look if the coronary arteries are involved, because um, that's the main issue with uh, kids with Kawasaki's that can cause some long-term sequelae. Sure. If it's caught for Kawasaki's anyway, if it's um, caught early, and it does look like they're using the same type of treatments for Kawasaki's, which is immunoglobulin and steroids, and so it just is sort of suppressing the immune response. Those kids actually have a very good outcome if they, when they are treated, do not have any uh, effect on their coronary arteries.
2: So the children that develop the Kawasaki-like syndrome from COVID have the potential to do worse than kids who are infected who don't develop that syndrome. But either way, we're talking about very, very small numbers. Correct. That's helpful.
1: Because the vast majority of kids with this will either be asymptomatic or have the sniffles and the mild cold-like picture, correct?
3: Correct. Correct.
1: Which has led to, well, Ryan, our listener, who wrote the question, you know, asked what implications does this have for reopening the country? Should children now be considered to be in an at-risk category? And your answers would be?
3: No. Yeah. <laughs> but I, don't think, I don't think they're in an at-risk category. And yeah. I think, you know, we'll talk about some things that schools can do to make things, um, quote, a little safer. But I, don't, I really think that this particular disease – it should not affect the way we make our recommendations. So we
2: always love it on this show when we do a little myth busting, Uh, it always makes us happy. So we've, (laughs) we've done that a little bit with children being a special at risk group, despite some of these reports. How about the other sort of uh, truism, if it is or is not that those children, the real at risk is them being around their grandparents. So are they, are they good vectors for transmitting the disease or has that borne uh, a different story?
3: That's a great question. So, just um, over the weekend, there was an article published with the title, it's actually had a good title, see so if I can find it. It said, Children are not COVID 19 super spreaders, time to go back to school. So, it, <laughs> g- it gave uh, many different countries and some statistics to show. Um, contrary to what we thought, that they're really not um, spreading it as much as suspected. Um, so I do still think that they're, they have potential to spread, but mm. not to the same degree that we initially thought.
2: It's interesting. You know, you know, I'm an OBGYN, and one of our greatest concerns and levels of angst, I would say, with our patients these last few months has been, what happens when they get home from the hospital? Can their parents come over and see the new baby? you know, because they've just spent a day or two in the hospital, maybe not, maybe not such a bad place, but maybe a place to encounter the virus. And now they may bring it home to their parents. So this idea that children can't visit their grandparents or their grandparents can't visit them has caused a lot of emotional turmoil the last few months. It would be wonderful if we could relax that a little bit and not be quite so worried about children as vectors.
3: No, I would agree. And I think you still, I don't think it means we don't wash our hands. We don't, right. you know, wear masks. So we don't do some social distancing. I think you still are careful. Mm. But I, I do think there, there's, um, you know, some some light there for us. Well,
1: on to the, the school question. So it sounds like, you know, fortunately, uh, a lot of things are going the right way with COVID as far as kids go. Might make it more likely to have schools open. But before we get to the questions about the U.S. schools, you told me this morning that there are already some countries ahead of us in opening schools. What have you learned about that, Michelle?
3: So particularly Denmark um, really has been very proactive and really, I think, was only shut down for schools for five weeks. They, They have some very Good protocols, and I think that the actually from what I've read from the CDC and in Colorado, very similar recommendations that um, are coming out for um, the schools here of social distancing and um, smaller classes. And so, yeah, they've so exactly, actually not what are they
1: doing in Den- in Denmark?
3: So they are have a shorter school day. Their class size, I think, is twelve. Um, they have different start times they're doing um, and the the parents um, still I mean I think if someone gets sick they stay home and they have you know lots of screening they have um, in the bathrooms the sinks and the plastic that's up they have lots of washing cleaning frequently Um, I believe the teachers and the kids are grouped together so they're all staying in one sort of cohort so if someone gets sick they know who they've been exposed to um, and I think that when they go home, they're changing clothes and, um, cleaning up. And so that if there is anything that they can decrease that spread to parents, um, so just lots, I mean, that was some of the things I read, they might be having more um, rules, but those are some of the things that I read.
1: And interestingly, they're not wearing masks.
3: That's correct. The teach are the teachers? I think the kids are not.
1: The kids are I not, I'm not teachers. sure about the teachers. Yes.
3: Yeah, I think the teachers are and not the kids.
1: But. Yeah, because kids are so good, especially elementary ones, about keeping um, masks on and keeping six feet away right. from somebody, right?
3: right. <laughs> I mean, that is my my personal bias for masks and kids. They It's almost more of a detriment. They, they put their hands on their face a little, even more when they have a mask on. <laughs> I, they, I
2: are inf- they are infectious little darlings. But if, if, if we put our public health sort of hats on, if – if we had to make a decision for a community, I'm, I'm just trying to think of the things that the decision maker must be concerned with. So are we gonna put the kids at danger by, because they may get sicker if they're infected? Well, we've learned, thanks to you, that that's not necessarily true. And are we gonna make the teachers sicker or are we gonna uh, seed the community by allowing infected kids to be around infected, non-infected kids and then the newly infected child takes that home uh, to the parents? I'm sure that's the fear Uh, and it's going to be hard to answer that question because it'll take some time for that data. But if we look to some of the Denmark and other experience, they appear to have done quite well with sort of a a reopening of the school system. But, you know, to the credit of the decision makers, I think there's a lot of anxiety with having to make that decision and pull the trigger to say it's okay.
1: Well, then we have (laughs) a worse example in Israel, right? Tell us about that. Mm-hmm,
3: correct. So in Israel, they started out with smaller classes. I don't know all the details of what they did because the article didn't go into specifics, but they started out small and then said, oh, it's going well. And it sounds like then they just kind of opened it up to everyone. And they have had a significant increase in cases in their community. But the article did not go into the specifics. Of what it sounds like to me, though, they did not have all the things that in place that Denmark did. Um, and that was just a recent publication, I think, just within the last week.
1: And I think that they did well initially when they had the spacing and the washing. But when mm-hmm. they tried to go back to normal right after that, that's when things increased. They closed the schools. Now, what I've noticed, I went on the Worldometer's website just before. And yeah, there's a little increase in cases in Israel, but nowhere near the level of cases and deaths that they had two months ago. Mm-hmm so that 's another thing I think that the policymakers glad i 'm not one of them, have to consider is what is an acceptable number of cases and deaths because bringing it down to zero would again lock down society, which we we know is not tenable
3: correct and I mean they think the other difficulty is we certainly can 't predict the future, but it, what what viruses typically have seasonality. And so this virus typically seasonally comes in the winter. And so to my thinking, let's kind of get things moving now with the possibility that we might have to change mm. and go back to maybe some, some more stricter criteria in the winter. Then you also have the confounding RSV, influenza, of the other viruses that will be circulating at that time right. that may make it difficult to sort things out.
1: So something I just realized this last week so influenza is a winter virus where is it now that it comes back in the winter
3: yeah it's in, I South, don't, it's it's in, in South, South Florida, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
1: that's. <laughs> It's at the north Pole yeah. with Santa right yeah that's right
3: yeah. no that's pediatrics is very seasonal with that we see different viruses in the summer than we do in right. the winter and so but,
1: so yeah. is it still just circulating at a very low level? And then when the relative humidity and temperature is right, it just boom increases? Yes, that's what I mm-hmm.
2: Okay. It will be interesting, I think, to see if, you know, we've made some cultural changes and our hand washing and social distancing, it should really help us with influenza. Um, and, it did and, too. And, and other viruses. As we go back into this winter, this will really be our first actual winter after the training of, of spring and summer of COVID, uh, we, we may see much lower infectivity rates just because of the social things that we've learned to do. I yeah, oh, so would
3: agree. I mean, my overall sick visit rate, even now, is much lower than it normally is.
1: Hmm. Ah. And by the way, what, so what is, what is your, your patient load now where 100% would be normal?
3: Um, I would say it's it's close to 90%. I mean, still those sick visits are not that people are really wanting to start coming back for physicals and getting, you know, ready for sports and all of that kind of stuff. And so it's getting very close to normal.
1: So, Michelle, there have been a lot of unintended consequences of keeping children at home during what we call e-learning in Indiana, which you call, I think, remote learning in Colorado. What have been the the problems, what are the downsides of kids not being in school?
3: Um, I would say the first and foremost, which seems somewhat obvious, and it's probably not unique to kids, is mental health. Um, So just a huge increase in anxiety. And my, my bias is that most of it is maybe someone who has a little tendency towards anxiety, but all of this just really increased it. Then you take Um, youth who really need to be with each other and that's a very big coping way they cope with things um, and you take away that resource for them and they really I had a a lot of kids with anxiety and depression that was just pretty significant Um, uh, the decrease in vaccination rates actually you probably have seen articles about that that uh, people were afraid to bring kids into the doctor so the vaccination rates for other diseases dropped Mm. significantly uh, we haven't quite seen this, but there's predictions that there will probably be some increased reports of child abuse. So, the, the reporters for child abuse are teachers and people of comfort. Uh-huh. And so, when, when kids are at home with parents potentially in an abusive environment, and plus you add the added stress of unemployment, um, I think there's some suspicion that that might be seen to be increased. Um, I had a couple of patients in my office who had some delayed seeking care for, you know, like heart attacks for adults. There was a little Mm -hmm. bit of worsening case of actually new cases of diabetes and DKA um, in pediatrics. So those would, oh, and actually the last one I just thought of was, you know, the educational consequences for kids that there had to be some gaps in education.
1: Well, what about nutrition, obesity, or appropriate food that's
3: a great question i saw two extremes actually tom my partner my other doctor in my office were talking about this last week so i had some kids that it it, their weight went up significantly because they weren't inactive they were sitting around the house but i had others that went down and i said well what'd you do differently well we stopped eating out
1: oh interesting (laughs) wow
3: So they were eating their meals at home, and so it was healthier. So I definitely saw both.
1: So in some of these other countries, they started first with just their younger students, and they're still ramping up to their older students. What do you think should be, and what do the policymakers that you've read think should be the way that we look at stratifying risk among students, activities, and their teachers?
3: so i think that uh, the probably the biggest thing that will be looked at and this there's going to be plans and they're going to have different levels i think of of hybrid models so there's go back to totally normal hybrid some at home some at some at school e-learning so or at, you know online um, will probably depend on what the community rate is what's circulating so if you've got a fairly low rate i think they're going to feel more comfortable to start back. But if a community has a higher rate, they might change that. Um, So I think that's going to be one. And then I do think there's going to be some uh, level to the parents, you know, depending on the child's risk. So if they have some medical conditions and they would prefer to stay home um, or a parent isn't comfortable sending the kids. So I think there's going to be different levels of how it's seen. And the teachers might have some difficulty because they might have to be doing in-school learning and online learning.
1: Oh, it's hard on parents. Yeah. I, I read this one poll, and I don't know if you've seen it, but they asked parents, oh, a month or six weeks ago, how likely they would be to want to keep their kids home from school and teach them at home themselves. And the rate was like 40% in this one study said that. Is that believable based on what you've seen?
3: That's surprising to me. Okay. (laughs) Although I had some parents tell me today that um, they were wondering because in in my experience, there were definitely extremes of how well a school did for e-learning And uh, the I think the private schools actually did a better job than the public schools. But this family specifically said, I'm going to go join an online school Mm -hmm. that might so, you know, so they've got experience, they know what they're doing, because some of the public schools it was harder for them to mobilize that environment where, you know, the public school kids have that option of online. So um, I think that there might be people who change their, those resources. My other concern would be for the private schools though, because I had the same thing happen for some of my families, my friends that said, I don't want to pay to homeschool my kids.
1: All of us who homeschool do pay. Yeah. Twice. Yeah. No, but you yes. but yes, that's yes. Right. But
3: you know what I mean, Tom. Yes. That they weren't gonna pay, yeah. you know, the the, sure. the Catholic school to give them their curriculum when they were really doing a lot At
2: of home. Work, so. sure. Michelle, based yeah. based on what you know, do you see antibody testing in kids as ever playing a role and sort of risk stratifying? We'll have a classroom that has kids that are all immune and we'll we'll segregate the non immune kids. Could you see that developing?
3: I I don't know this point. I don't think so. I mean, everything that we have a weekly, um, you know, Denver has actually been fantastic with Children's Hospital. We have this call once a week, all the p- private pediatricians with the docs at Children's. Oh. They've really been been discouraging the use of antibody tests in kids yep. to us from two or three different avenues. One Even the best tests still have a pretty high false positive rate. Part of that comes because you have such a low um, predict, you know, the fact that the incidence of the disease is so low. So that increases your false positive rate. The second is, is is one immunity, lifetime immunity. And kids also, I think there's some cross-reactivity for other coronaviruses. (laughs) So I I just don't think it it has um, adequate study to know that it would be useful.
2: I think the antibody question is so fascinating. And people that have a little bit of medical understanding, they find it frustrating. They think, well, it's simple. Just tell everyone if they're immune. And we just take for granted that we can tell you that about chickenpox but we can't tell you that about COVID-19. This happened to me actually just this weekend with a, a pregnant patient who knew that she was positive and was no longer sick. Um, and we were trying to decide with the hospital how to deal with her uh, because it hadn't been long enough to retest and trust the test. As you point out, antibody testing is not it's not trustworthy. We don't know how to interpret it when we get it. And it's got this high false positive rate. It really is a conundrum when you encounter somebody that's in the in the gray zone uh, that's too close to, to both ends of the scale. It can be maddening. And they end up being treated as positive, uh, which is not great for a birth experience in a hospital. But it's hard to know what to do in that situation. I could imagine children that are positive in the school setting that is really going to set off a lot of alarms. They're going to want to quarantine those kids and trying to decide when they can safely return uh, and not having parents be upset that, you know, a schoolmate of their children who was positive is now back in the classroom. Uh, I I suspect you and your colleagues will get plenty of phone calls about that.
3: I think you're right. (laughs) And and for the school, I think for the schools, can you imagine sort of just that confidentiality and all of um, that is going to be you know, difficult.
1: So, how do you foresee the schools starting out this August, Michelle, from what you've read and heard?
3: I, I think that the most likely model is hybrid, that smaller classes, you know, uh, um, kind of a starting, not everybody comes at the same time, uh, maybe a delayed release um, with the option for um, online for those who don't come, as well as the ability to be able to if you get too many cases in your school that you may have a two weeks, four weeks where you're home and then back to the school. So sort of a hybrid model. So of all the schools
1: are going to have to be able to stream all of their classes or record them? Is that what would be required or is there something, a different way to do it?
3: I don't know if they would be streamed, but they would have to at least have the work available um, for the kids. Maybe they would be streamed. I hadn't thought about that option. That would be certainly less work for the teacher than recording it and doing it live and doing the right. online assignment. Wow.
1: Mm-hmm. It, yeah, they have enough to do as it is when they're just doing it once. So to do it twice would seem right. to be very onerous. What right. what and activities you- besides classes do you think will occur at schools this fall, if any?
3: Yeah, the activity question, at least in Colorado, the statements all still are saying, you know, no competitive sports, no extracurricular activities have been approved um, to be even considered. I mean, that certainly could change. But um, I think that is where, you know, the kids are going to probably not like it, but those are going to be the activities that are going to limit it.
1: Wow hmm. that's I mean I
3: mean maybe there'll be the sports that have less contact will be allowed, um, but like I said, right now, at least Colorado's guidelines are are not really looking favorable for sports
1: yeah, and will buses still be used?
3: There are good guidelines for buses. I do think buses will still be used. Um, the, uh, the CDC as well as Colorado both had some guidelines, like the every, you know six feet apart on the bus. Uh, the bus driver has to wear a mask and lots of cleaning. So I do think that they will still have buses. The other thing that um, is really uh, something they talk about is meals. Many kids get mm-hmm. their meals at school. Right. Hmm. And so how they can keep that going, um, for these kids too, which is important.
1: Cause I've heard that cafeterias will likely not be used. Is that right?
3: They had, I think, three different models on the Colorado option that they would have pre-prepared boxed eating. Right. Um, I don't know how they could do this for everybody. They would mandate you bring your own food. Um, <laughs> They had, you know, di- different models, but most of it would be yeah, not in a, in an open cafeteria. They'd be eating in their classroom.
2: Because I think it's important for listeners and, and anxious parents to appreciate, it, it appears as though a casual passing of someone doesn't lead to an infection. It's this enclosed, um, no movement of air or reduced movement of air for a prolonged exposure to someone, which I think is the problem with uh, with mass and with singing and things like that. But but the casual walking down the hall isn't the challenge. But you could imagine a bunch of kids screaming and yelling at lunch in close proximity to one another. That would create a problem uh, that other kinds of school activities wouldn't. And planners just have to think of those in an individual, case by case basis. Uh, I'm glad it's their job and not mine, as Tom said.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah, no. I was actually very impressed with the detail that the reports that I read, you know, went into, you know, the the stations for hand-washing, and, you you know, you don't want to use your feet, your hands, so you have to have a a pedal to get the water. I mean, it was very complex.
1: (laughs) Like a surgical scrub sink, it sounds like.
3: Yeah, yeah. In the OR.
1: Do you think students are going to be asked to stay home for lesser symptoms than they would have otherwise in a normal school year?
3: Yes. We actually discussed this on the call at Children's today, so there was a discussion of um, would schools mandate negative tests, the nasal swab, not the antibody, before they go back to school. Wow. Well, well the, discussion, the discussion was they can't. I mean, there's too many kids. Yeah. And they would take away tests from people who needed it. Um, right. But then, then how do you determine who gets tested, especially during the winter when they have other symptoms, you know, so, and, and the, ultimately everyone said, I don't know how this is going to come out yet, um, but they're trying to ramp up for many stations. They're actually trying, because right now, the only place that I can get testing for kids really is at Children's Hospital, but they're trying to get almost all the private offices the ability to test so that we do have more places that can get testing, but it's still going to be an, a problem.
1: That makes sense. You know, talking to our friend Paul Cieslak, a public health officer in Oregon, they have this thing where they're going to have to have 35 square feet per person in whatever school classroom that they are in. So oh,
3: wow.
1: Yeah, so what, what I'm picturing, I don't know if you've seen at these minor league baseball games, but they put on these huge inflatable <laughs> costumes. It's like if you put everybody in that, then you can't get within six feet of somebody. But – um. Wow. Yeah, so 35 square feet. So take the room size, divide it. and So at, at least they have a number they're using.
3: Yeah, so more concrete, huh?
1: Is alternate day classes for, you know, have two groups of students who never see each other? Is that one of the things that's being considered?
3: Yeah, they had like 10 different options on the Colorado website. And some of that was group A comes on this day. And, you yep. know, because to get the numbers through the school, I think – You know, some of that will have to happen.
1: But then how do parents handle that if they normally are at work?
3: Um, That's a great question. It actually said in the report that the most important kids that they're addressing are the K through fifth who really need daycare, so to speak, as school is somewhat daycare. Sure. And they addressed that in many of the documents that that's the more important kids to be there than the older kids who can stay home.
1: Right. Well, cause that, in Denmark, that's why they started probably with the younger kids. So what do they say? What would they do for those kids? Would they, would they be there every day? Unlike older students?
3: That was the goal. Okay. If the disease in the community is, is acceptable.
1: Michelle, Do we know anything about the effects of virtual education versus in-person education on a student's um, ability to learn and their social development?
3: Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) I don't know of any studies about it. Um, I think it, it depends on the kid and depends... Certainly, social development is super important, but the kids who tend to be less social are going to like the learning online probably a little bit better. But they actually address very specifically in the documents, how are we going to test these kids to figure out their gaps in their knowledge? I think they sort of assume there will be. Um, So I think it's more because of the way it was done and so quickly. But I I think that there's got to be an effect more because not that necessarily you can't do learning by the computer. It's just that the way it was done in the spring was so quickly. There wasn't a lot of
1: preparation. Right. Right. Do you think the kids will be required to wear face coverings, at least the older ones?
3: I do. I do. At least in Colorado, because they're still being pretty strict. It might be different across the country.
2: It's tricky. I mean, uh, our our teachers—they have a lot on their plates as it is, and now they're going to become public health officials. <laughs> they're going they're going to feel responsible for sick kids and for screening and for preventing um, spread of the virus. Um, uh, we need to keep them in our prayers. That's a tough job. It's about to get tougher, I think, when schools open in the fall. Yeah, I
3: agree.
2: What what circumstances?
1: would have to be in place for you to feel comfortable with your kids going back to school, Michelle?
3: That's a tough question because I tend to be like, I just, I feel like the kids need to get there and I think their risk is low for myself. Um, I mean, I, I think that as long as they have, you know, some things in place that shows that they're, you know, the, they're cleaning the kids um, are, you know, know how to wash their hands. I would probably be more comfortable with not maybe not their normal class sizes, but a little bit bigger class sizes. Um, but I, I just have seen so much, even in my own kids, such a need to get back with their friends. <laughs> I would probably have a little bit lower comfort level than maybe other people, and that's I think the other thing that we have to take into play is respecting people's what their comfort level is. And um, if someone doesn't feel comfortable, then they make that decision for themselves. Um, so I think they just have to have a plan and they have to be, you know, very uh, thought out in how they're going to handle things would be my, uh, my concern. I'm actually going to be helping our school develop those plans.
1: Oh, good for you. Well, you'll have more to share with us later on in a, in a month or two. Probably. <laughs> you know, I found it funny in life, talking to lawyers, they're the ones who are least worried about laws. And in talking about COVID, the public health doctors I know are the ones least worried about their kids and themselves getting it. (laughs) Um, I don't know if this is good news for us or what it means, but, and I think you're that way uh, too. And maybe I'm a little bit that way, I'm not so worried, but I'm also not going into a big hug fest where people are having big parties. I don't know, have you been having get-togethers outside, inside? What are you doing there in Colorado?
3: Um, Yeah, I have had a few get-togethers with friends outside. Um, And, I mean, that's where I think we have to take some, again, personal responsibility. You know, um, talking to someone and saying, I mean, initially, actually, I had, even my own family members were worried because I was, doctor um, assuming that I was around you know a lot of sick kids but sure. I think we've taken such good precautions I told them they had a higher risk of being exposed at the grocery store <laughs> <laughs> so I'm certainly not planning I mean I'm going to mass but I had not planned on big big social gatherings but I have been getting together with my family uh, and a few friends and as long as they're comfortable and and understand then And I think that that's that personal responsibility.
2: It is interesting how uh, quickly societal norms have been able to shift. Uh, You know, I'm no sociologist, but I think it'd be interesting to study how fast they've changed here. But, you know, going out without a mask is... Worse than smoking, you know. <laughs> from, a, from from a society, um, a patient in my office last week said, uh, "It's nice to meet you, but I would rather meet you with a mask on." I didn't. I didn't have a mask on, and boy, did I feel silly. But you know, I, I felt like I would have felt if I'd gotten caught with a cigarette or something. You know, terrible societal sort of pressure to uh, to do the right thing or not do the wrong thing, and that's happened quite literally overnight, hasn't it? Um, I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure we'll go back. Um, you know, I haven't shaken hands with patients in several months now. And um, we used to be an office of hugs. There's not a lot of hugs going around. Um, it's really quite a different world in which we live today. Michelle, with you know in your practice, um, you know, I think if a pediatrician's office has to be one of the most positive places on earth, how has your practice changed uh, through the span of this pandemic?
3: Oh, just I mean, our procedures are so different um mm. so you know we we um are you know we all are wearing masks a hundred percent of the time. Mm. We are, you know, bringing our well patients in different rooms. I'm seeing my sick patients in the parking lot, <laughs> uh, doing a ton of telemedicine. Um, but, yeah, I'm really talking a lot to my patients about just their mental well-being and lots of reassurance uh, for kids. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that part, and, and how I mean, how my employees interact is probably a little bit different. Like you were saying, we tend to, but I think we've all still... Um, been very uh, positive and realizing because I mean it is so great to see the kids are doing well and so we're in a unique situation from the medical side for kids we have to deal with the mental health side but that part you know is nice to be in that place for pediatrics. Mm.
1: Michelle are you aware of plans that colleges and universities have for returning?
3: I think it really varies um, I just can know personally from my own, my son goes to Carter State, and they have planned to come back, but classes over 100 students will be online. So still a good percentage of their classes will be online. You could probably speak to your kids, uh, Tom, but I think it varies across the U.S. from, you know, California has right now still said they're not going back. So,
2: Yeah, it seems to really vary with prevalence. Uh, prevalence of the disease. I, I have, will have two kids in South Florida in college, and uh, they're taking a much more casual approach, you might say, than, as you mentioned, California. Um, but, but it is different. You're right. There's a great deal of variation.
1: Yeah. One of, uh, <clears throat> one of my kids going to Benedictine College, they announced they're going to start a week earlier in August. So they have all the classes done by Thanksgiving. They'll come home, and they'll take their finals online from home and they're stopping um, fall break. So I, I found they're trying to really limit the amount of contact students could have during the semester, which does make a certain amount of sense. I, I was not aware of what you said, that California is not going back to school. Is that what you said? At least as
3: of now? I think, the Cal- I, I think is that right, Chris? That's what I had heard, that the California schools have said their, I mean, they, that's their current statement, that the colleges are not Going back. Yeah, it's There'll hard to online. keep straight.
2: Is it, is it the state of California or is it specific colleges in various uh, regions of the state? But uh, it, it does appear in listening that, that California is taking a very, um, very closed position on, uh, on, the school, on colleges especially.
1: Michelle, what else do you think that our listeners should know or consider about their kids going back to school uh, this August and September?
3: Um, I think starting to have some conversation with your kids now, just to sort of give them some positive aspects that you know that it's realistic, that they might be coming back. I think both preparing yourself as well as your kids that that's a really, really realistic possibility. Um, and that would be that' would be my main thing. I can't think of anything in addition. we've covered so many other
2: things. You know, Michelle, I really liked what you said a few minutes ago, though. Um, and I think listeners should hear it again. We should probably be prepared for a midstream change uh, as the winter hits and our regular viral season cranks up. We may have to rethink a lot of the things that we've decided that we feel so comfortable with today in June. We may not feel that way in December or January.
3: Um, Yes. I think, you, I think it's just that flexibility, and as you guys all know, things seem to change in the news every day, yes. so just really understanding that, that having that flexibility is good.
2: So, Michelle, um, are there, finally, as we come to a, a close, are there resources that you could direct our, uh, our, our listeners, who are many of whom are parents, uh, that you could direct them to for better information?
3: I mean, I think that many people have accessed the CDC website, and it has um, the Center for Disease um, Control. So I think it's cdc.org. They have just a plethora of information for um, many different aspects of COVID. I've accessed my local, the Colorado Department of Health website many times, and they also have a lot of information. The local medical societies um, have have a lot of information Um, your hospital. So for me, Children's Hospital has produced lots of good resources. So um, for for wherever you're at, you know, checking on your website for your local hospital.
1: Michelle, thank you so much for preparing this, for being with us tonight on Dr. Doctor. It's been a pleasure.
3: Thank you, guys. It's good to talk to you.
1: You know, and we thank you, our listeners, for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association.
2: And please share this good news, we hope you think it's good news, of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen to their favorite podcast app, or they can always find us at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and we will sign off until it's time for your next dose of Dr. Dr.
3: Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell
1: research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit
0: AveMariaFunds.com.